0: All right, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 10. Uh, This week, we're going to kind of close off this chapter. We're looking at verses 11 through 22. Continuing in this amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Ephesus around 61 A.D., um, and most likely the, the letter circulated around that area as well, which is in now modern day Turkey. But it's, a, it's an incredible letter. It's, it's a short. I mean, your Bibles is divided into six chapters. You could read it in one sitting less than a half hour, but it is chock full of amazing truth. Amen. I mean, we've already been going through this series for a number of weeks and we are just barely closing off chapter two just to show you how much information is going on here. And it's great, amazing information. And one of the key focuses of this letter is the believer's identity in Christ, which is very appropriate because Paul is writing this letter to individuals who, apart from Christ, grew up uh, rooted, deeply rooted in paganism, in magical practices and sorcery and following the, the worldview of first century Rome and now that they're in Christ everything's changed their their life has changed how how they interact with their family how they celebrate uh, uh you know special days with, with you know it's no longer at the temple it's it's no longer giving homage uh to to caesar and and no doubt many of those new christians um majority of them gentiles wondered who am i now who am i this is this this area of a uh, part used to be very important to me and now because of Christ it's no longer so who am I and what Paul brings up is the believer's identity is in Christ we are in Christ he uses that term over and over again in all of his epistles he uses it like over 150 times in all of his his work you know, so it just shows you it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a dominant theme in, in uh, a lot of Paul's writings. In the book of Ephesians, uh, he uses that phrase, in Christ, along with its variation, some 30 times. So he's, again, he's really trying to hit in who we are in Christ. That's our identity. And as we examine this letter in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, we found out that if we are in Christ, if we are a follower of Jesus, we are saints, we are saints. We don't have to, you know, get validated by the Vatican, get blessed by the Pope. We are saints. You know, we, we, we didn't earn it. We didn't achieve it. It's just we're, we're in Christ. We are now separated, dedicated for the, the work and service of God. In uh, verses uh, 3 through 14 of the same chapter, chapter 1, we learn that if you are in Christ, you are blessed. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's not one brother and sister in Christ who is lacking in a spiritual blessing. We've received all of it in full. And it's not something that we're just waiting for in the future, it's a reality, something that we can even experience today. Those blessings. It's amazing. In, uh, last week, we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we found out if we're in Christ, we are saved. We have been saved by God. You know, and and the way Paul uh, kind of uh, brought this whole topic up, and we, again, we looked at this last week, uh, is he first starts off with bad news, right, before he goes to the good news. And there's a purpose for that, because in order for good news to be good, it has to trump the bad, right? There's got to be some bad news. And depending on how significant that bad news is, determines how significant that good news is and what paul brings up is really really bad right he just starts off right at the beginning apart from christ this is how you, who you and he's talking to the whole church he's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins it's like woo. didn't he didn't beat into you know let me try to make you feel better and before i lower the boom no he just lowered the boom you were dead in your trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. You were separated from God, the source of life, the source of eternal life. It wasn't just occasionally. No, that's who you were. We were, apart from Christ, spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins. And what were we, who were we following? Well, we were following the, the, the influencing power of this world, of Satan, of the flesh, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. I mean, that's yuck, right? Bad news. But then all of a sudden, Paul changes tunes. In verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with, to which he loved us, made us alive together with him. And then later on, he goes to that really uh, 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 famous passage that if you grew up in the church, you probably even memorized. Um, By grace, you have been saved. By grace. Grace is favor that is unmerited, undeserved. You know, uh, 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 we didn't achieve it. It's been bestowed on us by loving, merciful, amazing God. He says, by grace, we have been saved through faith, by putting our trust in Christ. He says, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift. Salvation is a gift, a free gift, not a result of works so that no one could boast. We don't bring anything to the table when, we, when it comes to salvation. Christ has done it all for us. And when we come to our passage this morning, Paul begins, in verse 11 of chapter 2, he begins with the word, Therefore which is in the Greek is the the word dio, which means for this reason or so then. In other words, what Paul's saying is, in light of what we've just gone through, in light of this amazing truth, particularly chapter two, verses one through 10 about salvation, he says, in light of all this, he gives the first command of the entire letter. There hasn't been any command yet, but here's the first command. The command he gives is Remember remember. And it's not just to be remember occasionally. No, this is something that is to be continuous. We are to continually exercise our memory, continually call to mind. And what Paul's going to get at is what, we need, what, what, what needs to happen is uh, people, he's going to uh, focus in on, on, on a group in the church. He says, you need to constantly, continually remember where you came from. You need to remember where you came from. And again, he's, he's, he's not, uh, in verses uh, uh, 1 through 10, he's kind of focusing in on the church in general. Here, verses 11 through 22, he's, he's focusing in on a group inside the church, the Gentiles. And he's saying, you Gentiles need to continually remember where you came from. And the language that Paul's using there, that word remember, harkens back to the Old Testament where the prophets would plead with Israel to remember the works of God in their life. Moses would say, Israel, remember, at one time you were slaves in Egypt, but God brought you out, rescued you. The prophets would say, you know, Israel, remember where you came from. You came from nothing, but God gave, brought you into the promised land. You know, God defeated the armies for you. Like, look where you came from. Look what God has done. Isn't that amazing? It was in Israel's continually remembering uh, uh, the works of God in their lives that encouraged them and inspired them to obedience of Yahweh. But when Israel forgot or chose not to remember, places like Psalm 78 or Psalms 106, it talks about, how the people of Israel fell into disobedience because they weren't remembering. You're not remembering where you came from, what God has done for you. So Paul's kind of taking up this, this same language here, and he's saying, you, you, you Gentiles, remember, continually remember. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, again, he's focusing on a particular group here in the, in the church, the Gentiles, which that was probably a majority of the members of that church, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision." Well, even though he's focusing in on one group uh, here, the, the Gentiles, he's also bringing in another group in, the Jews. You know, And, and that, that word uncircumcision, um, akrabustia, ooh, it's a fun word. I practiced that just to let you know. Um, it, 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 we, we, it appears that that word uncircumcision was a derogatory word, a racial slur from the Jews directed to the Gentiles. Because if, in case you don't know, historically there's been a lot of animosity between the jews and the and the gentiles lots of hostility like so much hostility in in, in some cases almost hatred towards one another uh we we have some uh, uh rabbinical writings from, i think the first or second century I, i'm trying to remember i don't but um it said it is not well it is not good for a jew to come to the aid of a gentile mother who's having trouble giving birth like you know she's in labor she's having trouble the baby's in distress the mother's in distress the, the, the writing was it is not good for a jew to aid to help that gentile mother because what you'd be doing is just bringing in another gentile into the world you don't want to do that in fact this other writing said that god in, it created the gentiles to use as kindling in the fires of hell uh, if if you were a, a Jewish um, boy or a Jewish man and you married a Gentile girl or vice versa, you were a Jewish girl marrying a Gentile uh, boy, uh, a funeral would actually be held. Uh, basically, you were declared dead, and just again just shows you the just a little bit, a little taste of the kind of animosity that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews did not like, hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles did not like, hated the Jews. But now, these Jews and Gentiles are in Christ. Now they're sitting in the same church. How do we fix this? How do we fix this? Now, this, again, just shows you God's word. It's, you know, God is an eternal God, and his word is Eternal. It is always and therefore it's always timely. It's always going to be relevant. And what was going on here in this church, we can definitely see what's going on in our world today. Uh, today, uh, it's it's been brought up as uh, you may have heard, it's social justice. It was an it's now a movement, but it started kind of as an ideology um, that took root in American soil around the 1940s it it really started catching some you know momentum around after World War II and you know started growing and then back boom right in 1960 it exploded and started developing maturing now it's at the forefront of everything just social justice you just see it all over now at face value when you hear about social justice it it doesn't seem bad. It seems like a good thing, right? Because justice, justice is a biblical thing. It's a biblical term. You know, uh, in uh, Micah, uh, you know, the, the, the word of the Lord comes to Israel, says, you know, what does the Lord uh, require of you? That you give more sacrifices and more offerings? He said, no, that you do justice. Love mercy and kindness, walk humbly with your God. God demands justice. Why? Because God is just, right? God is just. Now, what is justice? A very simple definition. It would be what is right. That is justice. Or to do what is right. But here's the problem. Who defines what is right? See, that's where the problem goes in between Christianity and social justice what ends up happening is you have this battle going on between God and his authority found in his word or man's authority in his word. Which one is it? I mean, we all know the problem. We, we can look in this world and we can say, is there injustice going on in this world? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is there bad problems, issues, people who are power hungry? Yes. How do we fix it? Is it God's word or is it man's word? In other words, what is sufficient? Is God's word sufficient to handle this, to, to come up with a solution? Not only the solution, is, is God's word sufficient to diagnose the problem and come up with the solution? Or is it man's word? Now, unfortunately, especially in the past two years, many Christians, especially so many Christian pastors, have come to the conclusion that you could bring those two together. In fact, you should. You should bring them together. Because, you know, they, they work as a, you know, in a symbiotic relationship, they balance each other out, they help you understand, really, what's going on in society, and therefore point us to a good solution to the issues in our, in our world. You know, in other words, God's word is, yes, it's authoritative, it's good, but it needs to be supplemented by all these other things. It's almost as if we need to add more books to the Bible. We need to add this book from this sociologist, this book from this psychologist, this book and this article from this, you know, behavioral scientist, add it all together, and there we go. Now we have a good roadmap to, to deal with this whole issue of social justice. again, What's sufficient? Is God's word sufficient or is man's word sufficient? Now, when it comes to social justice and Christianity, we do not disagree in regards to injustices in this world. We recognize it. I mean, unless you're living under a rock or some, you know, bunker somewhere, you, it's, you, you see it. I mean, I have personally, maybe some of you have personally experienced individuals who maybe have looked a little bit differently, different color skin, talked a little bit differently, be treated poorly by someone. Probably have seen that. I've seen it. I've seen it. My family, we've experienced it. So we, we, don't, we don't disagree in the fact that there is injustice, issues in this world. But when social justice comes to, the, uh, the, the, um, to diagnose what the problem, how this, what is the root of this problem, that's where we, di- we differ. You see, social justice will say the problem, the, where this is arising is the system or the systems that have been created. That's why you'll use the, the, they'll use the, the, the word, the terminology, systemic systemic injustice systemic racism it has to do that's where the problem is it's in the systems that have been created it's 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 the systems of privilege of power of those who are oppressive oppressing the the ones who are not power you know powerful to give you an example because of the color of my skin because of the way i talk because possibly even the way my 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 education i would be classified in a group with the title privileged i'm i come from a privileged group part of a privileged system that's all about keeping me in privilege keeping me in power keeping me oppressive to those who are minorities again it's the systems. the systems are the issue so then what is the solution destroy all the systems they're all bad they're all bad that's where we get the word critical, critical theory, critical race theory. The idea of critical is dismantle. Guess what? That's, that mentality is satanic. That mentality is satanic. You see, God is the one who creates, Satan wants to destroy. You know, and, and that's what critical theory is all about. It's critical it's just, oh, let's be critical about everything. It's the systems. They're horrible. They're, we just need to basically lodge a bomb in there, blow it all up, bring everything ground to ground zero, and then build it up to the way we want it, which, by the way, many of these social justice experts don't even know what that future looks like. Critics of social justice will say, wait a minute, um, if you destroy all the systems, wouldn't that create anarchy? Their response, well, the ends justify the means. We just need to get this fixed. Whatever it means, let's just get dismantle it. And then everything will be great. But for Christians, biblical Christians, we look at the injustices. Yeah, we see it. We see it. We see it. Ukraine, we see it in other countries. Dictators, all that. We see that everywhere, even in our country today. We see issues. But what is the root problem? Social justice says systems. The Bible says sin. That's the problem. Not the systems. It's sin. That is where the problems originate. So then what is the solution? Destroy the systems. You know redistribute the power and and, and resources to all the minorities to, you know, address the grievances. No, the solution is Jesus. And that's what Paul's going to get at here. Paul's going to say, this issue in the church of two groups, Jews and Gentiles, who are constantly at odds, historically at odds with each other, hating each other, how do we fix this? Jesus comes in. So again, we have to ask ourselves, is God's word sufficient to address this issue? If you want to call it racial reconciliation, whatever you want to call it, injustices, is God's word sufficient? And I just want to read you a, a section of scripture. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've, you've heard this. If you've been part of uh, Cascade Bible Church any number of years, this is almost like our theme verse here. But uh, verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is God-inspired or God-breathed. And what? Profitable. Profitable for telling us how to dismantle the systems and redistribute power? No. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we at Cascade Bible Church, we call ourselves a Bible church because we believe that this is the ultimate authority in our lives, should be the ultimate authority in our lives. It is sufficient to address every issue in society. It's like, well, wait a minute. It doesn't really tell me how to, you know, invest or which house to buy or where to live maybe it doesn't specifically address those things but it gives you enough wisdom and insight to make those decisions to live a life that is godly to live a life that is pleasing to god this book this amazing book that we have at our fingertips right here some of you got to have access it on your phone my goodness what a spoiled group of people we are We have access to God's amazing truth. And so Paul's going to address this this issue. So uh, uh, Paul's going to, first, the way Paul's going to address this, he's going to follow the similar pattern that he did in uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. He's going to start off with bad news. And then he's going to move to good news and again depending how significant the bad news is determines the significance of the good news and it is really bad but he's going to be again focusing in on the gentiles this one group also the jews are going to be kind of lumped in there as well but he says therefore remember verse 11 therefore continually remember that formally you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Now, circumcision, biblically, was a, a sign that you were part of the covenant community of God, that you were obedient to God. But the Jews kind of took it a little bit over and said it was a, it was a, it was a sign of their privilege. Of, it was a sign that they were uh, better than everyone else. That's how they kind of viewed it. Oh. Oh we are the circumcision you Gentiles are the uncircumcision we're great we're special so again yes there's animosity there right someone ever told you I'm better than you oh does that make you feel like oh let's hug and kiss and kumbaya it's like no I'm going to go for the ribs and then the kidneys and then you know <laughs> you know some of you are like yep I knew exactly where to hit and how to rupture the spleen um, but yeah there's this animosity going. But it's really interesting. Paul, Paul adds this parenthetical phrase. He says, uh, who are called uncirc- uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Now we can all go, well, no duh. How else would you want circumcision to be performed? <laughs> by a robot? I mean, you know, if some crazy doctor said, hey, I'm here to take your baby to circumcise, we got this handy-dandy robot robot. Run on Duracell batteries. It just keeps going and going and going. It's like, no, do it, do it the normal way, you know. Of course, of course, circumcisions would be done by hand. But if you were a Jew listening to this in the first century, you would have been very familiar with this word that Paul uses for this idea of performed by human hands. I'm not even going to re- pronounce it because I don't know how to pronounce it. But it's a word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And it's, ref, it's, it's used in reference to the Israelites who are disobeying God by following after idols who are described as things made by human hands. So the idea there is just to show the insignificance of those idols. Israel, these idols that you follow, these idols that you worship are insignificant, are nothing. Why? Because they're made by human hands. Guess what? Paul uses that same uh, language to refer to the Jews. Listen, your circumcision is really nothing. It's done by hands. It's really not that significant as you are making it up to be. So he says, remember Gentiles. Again, the command there. Number one on, on the outline. Command to remember their former situation. We would do well to, do, to follow this as well. You know, it, it, it helps us if we remember where we were from and what God has done. I mean, my goodness, that's, that's encouraging, that's inspiring. It gives us hope. You know, remembering your past isn't just, isn't it meant to just weigh you down and make you full of shame. No, it's to say, wow, look at where I was. Look at what Christ has done in me, through me. Oh my goodness. Some of you have amazing testimonies. Some of you grew up, you know, maybe bad homes or whatever, and you lived in open rebellion. You did everything under the sun, and you would consider yourself an evil person. And then all of a sudden you came to Christ, and Christ did an amazing work in your life. And you're going, wow, look look at where I was, and now look at where I'm at. Paul's kind of doing the same thing. Remember your past situation. And now, second, in ver- starting in verse uh, 12, he's going to list five characteristics of their former situation. Again, bad All bad. Verse 12, number one. He says that you were at that time separate from Christ. Well, we just went through that even last week, uh, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we're cut off from God, who is the source of life, the source of eternal life. This word here for separate means that there's a great space separating us from Christ, and that's a result of sin. Remember, we looked at I, Isaiah, says that our sins uh, separate us from having a relationship with God. Paul's saying, that's, that's who you were. It wasn't who you occasionally were. No, you were at this, that time separate from Christ. You were at that time continually separate from Christ. Number two, he's talking about excluded from God's people. He says excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Excluded means to be estranged, to be a non-participant. Commonwealth literally just means to be a citizen. You were estranged. You were not part of Israel. You were not a citizen of Israel. You were excluded from the blessings that Israel received by being his special people. That's who you used to be. You're cut off. You're you're excluded from being part of the citizenship of Israel. Third, he says, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now here I put on the outline, strangers to God's word, because in a covenant, a covenant is a relationship that Israel had with God. And as a result of that relationship, they received the word of God. They received it in the form of the law. They received it through the prophets. They received, and, and, and through that word, were promises. Amazing, glorious promises that, that gave them hope for a future. With all the bad stuff that was going on, it gave them hope. It put fire under the feet. Oh, we could keep on going. God's got some promises he's going to fulfill. Paul's saying, you Gentiles, which by extension is us, because unless you could really prove that you're from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you know, you were Gentiles. We were separate from Christ because of our sins. We were excluded from the citizenship of, of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promises We did not we, we were never blessed with having the word of God preached to us, proclaimed to us. Fourth, having no hope literally possessing no hope. I mean, what does this world... Um, one, one, him, um, one of my professors was a, a history teacher, great man who, who loved Jesus, but uh, we were going through World War I, World War II, and he, he was, made a comment saying, you, you want to destroy a people, take away their hope. If you really want to destroy someone, take away their hope. It's that hope that keeps them going. You know, it's, a, it's that light at the end of the tunnel, as they sometimes call it. But here Paul's saying, you Gentiles, you did not have any hope. No, none, zip, having no hope. And then finally, number five, and without God in the world. The word that he uses for uh, without God is atheos. It's where we get the word atheist. But it's here it's not referring to not, you didn't believe in God. No, because Gentiles believed in many gods. This is the idea of literally being without a relationship with God, having, not having God a part of your life. God's not a part of your life. God's not live, uh, guiding you, directing you, nothing. This is what Paul's saying, I want you to remember. I want you to remember where you came from. Because now, starting in verse 3, uh, uh, Paul's going to uh, um, address Gentiles now in Christ. Here comes the good news. Like, this is who, where you came from. Really bad. Significantly bad, right? There's no hope without God in the world. I mean, how bad can you get? It's just bad, 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 bad. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. You who were formerly far off have now been brought near by what? by dismantling the systems of power by redistributing that power and the resources to the underprivileged no by what by the blood of Christ by the blood of Christ there's a solution right there and th- this is what's so been so tra- tragic the last couple years And seeing many, many pastors, many pastors, pastors that I I, I used to follow um, for a number of years, pastors who taught me a lot from scripture, um, who I thought were just solid, crumble these past two years and get sucked into this whole thing of social justice and critical race theory, intersectionality, and whatever isms or whatever that's that's going on right now it's like wait a minute don't you you preach the authority of god's word do you not believe that anymore it's, oh no no we believe that god's word is author it's authoritative but it's got to be supplemented supplemented by all these other things i mean we take vitamins we take supplements the bible needs it too it's like are you kidding me it's like well you know, it, God's word isn't ultimate. Basically, what, without them saying it, they're saying God's word is not sufficient enough to address this issue or these issues in this world. And here Paul's saying, no, it is. These issues are, are solved by the blood of Christ. It's right there, by the blood of Christ. You Gentiles who are far off have now been brought near. By what? A system? A program? No, by the blood of Christ. So now the Gentiles have been brought near. In verse 14, now Christ is our peace. He says here, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Now that word is, is the Greek word me. And it, it's, it's used all over the place in the Greek New Testament. But it means to be or to exist. And here it's presented in what we call the present tense. It's something like continually exist. That he himself continually exists as our peace. Not just as our peace occasionally, peace when bad things happen. No, he is continually our peace. Not only does he bring peace, but he is our peace. Isaiah said that he's the prince of peace. Remember, the, I think Isaiah, forget the chapter, but talking about he'll be wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, prince of peace. That's who Jesus is. And then he's going to expand. What does this mean? What, how, what did this peace bring about? He, he continues, number one, the, the two groups. He says, for he himself is our, our, our peace who made both groups, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, members of the church here, who made both groups into what? One. And broke down, literally tore down, destroyed, dissolved the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, the hatred. And what is that hatred? Which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. Now, this is, this is a lot. Let's kind of pa- uh, unpack this a little bit. First part of of, of verse 14, when he says he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, Um, that's language that would have, for the people in the first century, would have instantly brought their minds uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple that was still in existence. The temple didn't get destroyed until about 70 AD. So this is about 10 years prior to that. And so he understood that the temple um, was in existence. And when you look at the temple, there were all these different courtyards. You know, and let, let's go a little bit further back to the Old Testament. God's desire is to dwell among his people, but it's going to look differently. It's not going to look the way it was with Adam and Eve because of sin. So they're going to, he, he has Israel make, construct this tabernacle, this mobile tent. Okay. Now, when you read in the Old Testament, you, you read of people in, in the, 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 the camp and people outside the camp. The people in the camp were Jews who were ceremonially clean. The people outside the camp were Gentiles or Jews who were ceremonially unclean. When it came to the uh, courtyard in the tabernacle, only uh, the, the, the Levites and the priests were allowed to go into that area. Everyone else had to stay outside. And then one priest would go all the way inside the tabernacle to the, to the most holy place and do the, 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 uh, a sacrifice one time a year. When years go by, they, a temple was actually uh, set up and those courtyards were just kind of expanded. So you had the temple and the outer courtyard, they called the courtyard of the Gentiles. Meaning if you were a Gentile, non-Jew, who desired to follow the true Yahweh God, the creator of the universe, this is where you would go to worship. But that's all you where you couldn't go anywhere else. It was just the courtyard of the Gentiles. That was it. There was another inner courtyard. That was the the courtyard of women. It's kind of like where the temple was. There's a little little segment there. Um, And that's if you were a Jewish woman who wanted to worship. That's where you can go, but you couldn't go any further. The next courtyard was the courtyard of, of Israel. This is if you were a Jewish man who wanted to worship God. You can go through the court of Gentiles, through the court of women, to the court of Israel. There you can worship. You couldn't get close to the temple or you know, do the, 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 the ceremonies or even go into the temple unless you're a priest. If you're a priest, you can go through the court of Gentiles, through the court of women, through the court of Israel, to the, 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 the court where the, the priests served, and you can actually, again, go inside the the, 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 the temple. But only one priest, one time a year, can go all the way through the court of Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Israel, through the area where the priests gave the sacrifices, into the temple to the Holy of Holies, inner portion of the temple. And there he can worship the Lord, offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. Now, who were the furthest away? The Gentiles. Paul says, you who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Think about that. As a Gentile hearing that, maybe you were a Gentile who was following Yahweh. You went to the Jerusalem temple and you stood in the Gentile courts worshiping God, but man, oh, to be in your presence. And now Paul's saying, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So good and he says and, 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 and those 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 walls those barriers have been broken down uh, uh, Josephus who's a, an ancient historian um, mentioned and actually I think believe we actually found uh, this uh, marker but it was a right where the court of Gentiles was entering into the court of women there was a marker and I think there was a few markers that basically said if you're a gentile and you go you know you go past this line uh you're gonna die basically you know again it's just like whoa you know we're serious if you go past here you're gonna die you're a gentile you stay where you're supposed to be in fact this is the 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 accusation they brought against paul they said paul brought a gentile into the main court and paul's like what what's going on But because of the blood of Christ, Christ himself is our peace. He has broken away all these barriers. Now, want to get to abolishing the law and commandments contained in the ordinances. What does that mean? Well, the word abolish could mean um, to make ineffective or to set aside. It was a legal term, best translated to nullify. Basically, what, what Paul's saying is that the law has been nullified as the basis for a covenant relationship with God, in other words, we don't have to perfectly follow the law in order to be saved. God has done away with that. I mean Christ has done away with that. that, that, that that's, that's not a case, because the truth is, any of you can follow God 's law perfectly? Anyone? No. The Jews couldn't even do it, which is why they, could, they had to constantly offer sacrifices because they couldn't. But Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. And, and, and he, you know, he never had to offer a sacrifice because of his sins because he never sinned. Instead, what did Jesus do? He offered himself as a sacrifice for everyone else so that now we, those barriers, those walls, that's we separating us from having a relationship with God could be done away with. Is the law still important? Yes, it is. Some people, some scholars will say, no, now, now it's been abolished. We don't need to follow it anymore. No. The basis of our salvation is no longer uh, dependent on if we follow the law perfectly because we can't. But Jesus did on our behalf. That's so cool. So Cool. So uh, uh, how how, have we been, how is Christ our peace? We've brought the two groups, uh, Jews and Gentiles, are now one. The dividing wall of enmity, of hostility, of opposition, of hatred has been destroyed, has been broken down. The law as the basis of our covenant relation with God has been uh, 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 nullified. Christ has done it all for us. And finally, his access to God through the same spirit. It says uh, uh, second part of verse 15, so that in himself he may, might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace. Oh, I'm skipping one. Verse 16. Reconcile. I'm, I'm This is great. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because it's just so awesome. Verse 16. I'm surprised you guys didn't go, hello, you messed up. guys are just trying to be nice or whatever. But anyways, verse 16. Reconciled, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. There's that word again. Hostility, ill will, opposition towards one another. See, here's here's the thing. When it comes to reconciliation, we don't have to make reconciliation. We don't have to achieve, that's a better way of putting it. We don't have to achieve racial reconciliation. It's already been established through Christ. So that's why Paul says, eagerly maintain the unity. Just maintain it. It's already been established. You don't need to go to school. You don't need to get a degree. You don't need to read this person, this, you know, listen to this TED talk or this podcast in order to figure out how to reconcile uh, uh, different people and, and, and racism. No, it's already been established through the cross. It's there, it's already there. That enmity has been put to death in Christ's death. Now we get to verse 17, the access to the the same spirit. and, And he came and preached. Literally, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. Now this is a a definitely allusion to Isaiah 52, where it talks about how beautiful the feet of those who proclaim the good news. And then in Isaiah 57, it talks about those who uh, were far away and those are far uh, uh, peace being proclaimed to those who are far off and those who are near. Which is interesting. Again, those who are far off are the Gentiles. Those who are near are the Jews right? Because they're part of the the citizenship. They're part of that covenant relationship with God. Both need Jesus. Both need Jesus. Those who were near weren't better off than those who were far off. Both needed it. Both needed the good news of peace preached to them. So Jesus came, preached the good news of peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our our access in one spirit to the Father. You see the beauty, the Trinity here, just beautifully displayed. We have access to God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's God right there. Oh, it's because of us, it's because of our systems, it's because of our knowledge. No, No, it's all God. God's the one who's done it. And whether you're a Jew, Gentile, black, white, or wherever you came from, what side of the train tracks you were born, we're, we all have access to the same God through the power of the Holy Spirit. One race, one human race. So that's amazing good news, Right? amazing good news so in light of that what paul's going to do next talk about is now the characteristics of the church because guess what that's what we're a part of now whether you're a jew or a gentile you are the church so number one what is the characteristic number one fellow citizens he says so then Consequently, as a result, therefore, of what we just went through, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, and it's that same verb, emi, to be, to exist, it's in the present tense, you continually are, you continually exist as what? Fellow citizens with the saints, Paul says in, in Philippians, um, forget the chapter, but that we are citizens of heaven. We are part, all of us, whether, again, whatever background you come from, what, however you sound and smell and whatever, we are all citizens of God's eternal kingdom. Gets even better. He says we are also members of his household. So not only are you fellow citizens with the saints, but are uh Of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the same family. Again. Think about it. You got Jews. Probably sitting on one side maybe. And Gentiles probably sitting in another portion of a house. Maybe that's where they were meeting. And, and this letter from Paul is being read. And you've got to think, they're kind of like squirming a little bit. Ooh, he's talking about this. Ooh, Talking of bad news. Oh yeah, that is bad news. And the Jews kind of maybe getting a little embarrassed as well. Then all of a sudden God, I mean, Paul says, but now, look, you've been brought near. You you are citizens with the saints. You're all part of the kingdom of God. Not only that, you're all part of the same family, the same spiritual family. It's like, huh? Whoa. Having been built on the on the foundation of the, uh, the apostles and prophets, verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, some people argue because this word could be uh, translated as a capstone, um, so, cornerstone was basically the, the, the foundation stone. It was the stone that was to bear the weight of the entire structure, basically. A capstone was the, basically the cherry on top. But we're done, you know. But this word here is used again in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 28. It's a prophecy of uh, of Jesus. And I'll just read it real quick to you. Isaiah 28, verse 16, if you want to look that up later on. Isaiah 28, verse 16 says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. That's who Jesus is. He is the foundation of our faith. He's the foundation of this thing called the church. But look at this, verse 21, in whom the whole building, and now this is referring to us, okay? The whole building be, being fitted together, being closely joined together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, that word for temple, there's some debate about it, but uh, most scholars would say it's referring to the inner portion of the temple in Jerusalem, the, the, the place where only the high priests could go one time a year. We're, the, the, this, this building, this church is growing into a, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, You, church, are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So like, whoa. Again, get the image of the the temple in Jerusalem. Court of Gentiles, court of women, court of Israel, the place where the the priests served, and inside the temple, and then there's an inner portion of the temple which only one person had access to. That was the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. But now, because of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are now a temple for God. That temple is no no longer there. It's been destroyed. It's gone. There's no need for that temple. Why? Because you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God right here, right now. And we are being built together, put together, fitted nicely together. Each one of us having a part to play, a role to play in this amazing thing called the church family. We're being built up into a dwelling place. This is the idea of a a place where God permanently dwells among his people. This is amazing stuff. Amazing truth, right? Amazing truth. So, if we go back to what we start, talked about earlier, we have an issue in our world. There's injustice. There's problems, right? We see it. We all see it. Whether you're a Christian or part of the social justice movement, we recognize there's injustices in this world. But where does the problem lie? Social justice will say it's in the systems. The systems that are all about promoting the powerful over the powerless. The oppressors over the oppressed. The Bible says the problem is sin. Why? Because we're all dead in our trespasses and sin. Sin brings evil. Sin brings wickedness. Sin causes so much suffering. We're seeing it when you look on television what's going on in Ukraine. The sin of one evil man causing so much problems the problem isn't systems the problem is sin so what's the solution social justice will say deconstruct everything redistribute the power and the resources among the minorities the Bible says the solution is Jesus Jesus is our peace He brings us peace with God. He brings us peace with each other as well. For in Christ, we don't have to generate this idea of reconciliation. We've already been reconciled to God and to each other. Since Jesus has established peace, since he has brought reconciliation, we are now one body, the church. And as the church we are citizens of God's eternal kingdom, we are members of the household of God, we're part of the same family, and we are the temple of God, and together we are being built into a a dwelling place of God. One, um, I'd like to read a quote, hopefully I can find it, from a pastor in regards to the the church, kind of gives a a new, new perspective in, in light of this amazing truth. This pastor says, uh, this, this passage that we just went through confronts Western individualism in regards to the church, being a part of the church. To be separate from the church is to say, I want to be a stone apart from a building or a son or daughter separate from my family or a refugee away from my country. Many people treat the church as something that is unnecessary, unimportant, or even a hindrance to doing great things for God. I used to believe this. Belonging to a local church should be more important than where you go to school, where you work, or to what club you belong to. I don't think we realize the significance of this thing called the church that Christ established with his own blood. And we do our, we would do ourselves good to remember this, to live in light of this. We are the church. I talked about this uh, in in our um, annual meeting, um, for those of you who weren't here, that we're going through a season of, of change. Past 30 years, this is significant change, significant transition. And the idea is like, well, how do we get through it? And, um. There was a a, a number of them. I'm going to see if I can remember uh, what I said. But basically, uh, the focus is, um, one, is is to to trust. Oh, no, to pray. Number one, pray. Prayer is very powerful. And the church, we should be praying. And as a leadership, we're going to be trying to, put uh, together more opportunities where you can pray. We already have men's uh, uh, breakfasts on Friday mornings at eight o'clock where we have breakfast and then we spend some time praying. Even if you, let's say you don't do breakfast, just then join us at around 8.15, 8.20 for prayer. It'd be great. Um, the Bible says that, you know, uh, Paul says in 1 in, um, Timothy uh, that, that the men in any occasion should pray. The, any occasion in the church whenever they come together men should be praying and especially during this uh, in, in, intense season that we're going through not only just as a world and as a as a as a country but even as a in as a church a local church uh we need to be praying so uh it was prayer trust you know do, do not lean on your own understandings we need to trust the lord trust that god's in control right uh the the third one was uh love we are called to love with not just, oh, I love you. It's agape love. It's a sac- self-sacrificial sacrifice, self devotion. It's the kind of love that Christ uh, displayed to us when he died on the cross. And then uh, fourth was um, to serve. And that kind of wraps in what Paul's talking about here with the church, that we're all part of the same, we're citizens of the same eternal kingdom, that uh, were reconciled, that, that uh, uh, were members of God's household. We're part of the same family. And, and I don't know about you, but it was a, it was a bad thing for my mom to, to work and make dinner and for us kids not to help clean up afterwards. I don't know how it was in your household, but it was in mine. Mom just made dinner. Whoever made dinner, someone's got to help put the food away and clean the dishes. You guys, we're part of the same a family. And, and, and it, it, the, the, the reality, it's not up to the pastors or the leaders to do all the cooking and the cleaning and the setup. Would you do that to your mom? Would you do that to your grandmother? For many churches, that's exactly what they do to their leaders. Many pastors don't make it past five years, three years, in fact. I think that's a new statistic. Why? so demanding why because the church isn't acting like the church i come i sit down i eat what you prepared for me and i'll critique what you prepared for me oh you didn't season it well you didn't present it before me the way i like it and then i'm gonna go and then i'll come back again when you have something else that i really want i like That's not the church. If we believe that this, that God's word is authoritative, then we believe what Paul's saying here about the church. And it is magnificent. Then we better live in light of it. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you so much for this, this, uh, word. Um, thank you. Holy spirit for guiding us and directing us into, uh, the truth of this word. It's, it's just amazing truth. It is, uh, it is encouraging as well as challenging lord because this is this is not the norm in our society help us lord to realize the significance of the church that it doesn't matter how you look which background you came from how you talk or whatever we're all part of this amazing church your body you are the head guide us and direct us in the way you see fit and may we work together in such a way that allows this body to grow and mature lord this world right now is in chaos it is in confusion there's a lot of hatred going on and they think they have the solution in the words of men but the truth is the solution is found in Jesus and so just as Jesus came to preach the good news of peace may we also be bold enough to proclaim the good news of peace in our world to our friends to our family to our neighbors to our co-workers may we not take take uh, take this truth for granted, this good news for granted. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.